Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm in the bus. I, you know, I'm not going to start the race. I don't know what the protocol is or, uh, as far as what we're supposed to be doing. We've had the driver's meeting, debrief, whatever. The car's on the grid. A driver's going to get in it and go. And I figured when it was my turn, I'd walk on over to the pits uh, you know, a couple, 30 minutes ahead of time and get ready and have be ready to stand in there when it's my turn. So dad comes by the bus and uh, he's like, come on. So we get on the golf cart and we drive out to pit road and we walk out there and he's like we gotta we we need to get pictures we gotta have pictures of this of us you know we're cars here drivers here we're all together let's get some photos and so we all um i don't know if it was what every team did but all four drivers out there next to the car before it took off um there's a lot of you know the, the anthem and so forth the pre-race festivities all that going on so that was a, a special moment for me i think probably for dad too because this was all something that they've been working on for months putting this whole deal together and uh it was about to happen the race was about to happen and you can see dale in the car crew member helping him get the lap belt done up dale buys it up first time in it oh stalls it momentarily even he's been nervous it's his experience guys so all eyes are on dale earnhardt the winningest driver in daytona history it's his first time road racing here at the world center of speed Welcome to the NASCAR NBC Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. This is part two of a special edition of the podcast heading into the 2019 Rolex 24 Hours of Daytona. NBC Sports has coverage of IMSA's 50th season, and it starts with the Rolex 24 this Saturday. And among the 17 announcers who will be part of 25 hours of coverage is Dale Earnhardt Jr. If you heard part one of this podcast, and if you haven't, go back and listen right now, you know that Dale Jr. made his Rolex 24 debut in 2001. He was on a team with three co-drivers, his legendary father, Andy Pilgrim, and Kelly Collins. The foursome finished second in their GTO class, and fourth overall, as their teammate's Corvette won the 24-hour race. Part one was all about the origins of this legendary and unique pairing of the Earnhardts and Daytona, and all the preparation that went into it. Part two is about how the race went, 
what would have been next in sports cars for Dale Earnhardt, and how, nearly 20 years later, the race still touches Dale Jr. and Doug Fian, longtime Corvette Racing program manager. Those are the two primary voices you will hear in these episodes. Let's pick up now with the race. It's February 4, 2001. Dale Earnhardt is climbing into the yellow number 3 Corvette for the first time, and during a rain shower, which turned out to be perfect conditions, according to Fian. Dale was out there, and it started to sprinkle. And so the guys were a little bit nervous, and, and they're on the blower to him. You know, how you feel? No, I'm, I'm liking this. I'm liking this. Just, actually, I kind of like this. Well, the reality of it was when the track was just a little bit wet, the car kind of worked like a NASCAR. Oh, yeah. It reduced the level of grip, and it was providing him just enough movement in the car where he could work it. Because the rain has started to fall harder, and he is on dry weather tires. Now, here's a guy who has spent his entire life racing stock cars, never goes out in the wet. And here, with slicks on the car, he is passing people right and left. Though he initially was scheduled for one stint, Dale Earnhardt asked for another. And then another. Dale Earnhardt has just crawled out of the number three a Goodwrench Corvette, and Kelly Collins will be getting on board. Dale Earnhardt put in an absolutely stellar driving stint in some very abysmal conditions, turning some very quick laps, and now they turn the chores back over to Kelly Collins. There is uh, Dale Earnhardt Sr. getting on the radio. I guess he wants to uh, talk to Kelly about something. You look like a happy man, but you've obviously had the time of your life out there. I'd, I'd want to stay in there another stint. He was begging for a fourth, when Fian and his team finally had to say no. So he did his first stint, and it's still wet. I say, you good to go? Yeah, he says, I, 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 I'm good for two. He gets done with two, and he gets on. Before he's even done, he doesn't wait for us to ask. He says, can, can I go three? <laughs> he was having such a good time with the track being wet. He was really loving it. So we let him do three. He wanted to do four. We said, no, you got you got to, you know, there's time limits. You got to come in. Yeah. You got to rest. We were going to look at one, and normally the guys would only do two because you're looking at tickling two hours, and, yeah, yeah. you know, you want to get them rested and back in cadence. So, yeah, yeah I, but he ended up he ended up doing three, wanted to do three. four. He, he didn't want to He didn't want to come in. <laughs> he wanted to do the World 600 right there. <laughs> <laughs> there were flashes of the Intimidator, who rarely hesitated to rough someone up in NASCAR. Everybody knows that. He's, uh, we have word he's pushed a couple of guys off the road. But what Dale Jr. recalled and respected most about how his father ran the race was how measured and methodical he was. When we got, we we're about halfway through this thing, I'm sitting there thinking, you're Dale Earnhardt, why are you doing this? Why are you not running harder? Why are you not pushing harder? Why are you not, you know, cutthroat, intimidator, gouging people's eyes out? Where is this, you know, where's that, you, you know, that usual guy we see in the stock car? And I understood, I think, by the end of it, as I learned what endurance car racing's all about and what a 24-hour event's all about, that he was actually maybe more prepared for it than I was mentally. Dave, I would say he seems very, very smooth out there. He's got the look of a long-distance racer. He's already thinking way ahead. He's not engaged in uh, trivial little battles. You know, run comfortably and set a pace that you like and enjoy and and drive the car, have fun, learn the car, enjoy driving the car, enjoy the race, and enjoy the experience. You know, I went in there putting so much pressure on myself and thinking I had to just be the best every lap. And oh, I'm only, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm three, 
quarters of a second off of Pilgrim. Oh, I gotta find that. You know, where's that at? And go out there and grind and grind and push hard and make a bunch of mistakes. You know, he didn't do that. I really uh, came to appreciate his approach by the end of it. But Dale Jr. was no slouch behind the wheel either. Despite a few mechanical problems and a spin, he acquitted himself well, especially given the circumstances of being teamed with a seven-time champion who was guaranteed to overshadow him. Because Junior had just started racing, and in those days, uh, you know, I mean, you're with your dad, who's the superstar. I mean, Junior was a, a very quiet, very reserved, very attentive, very methodical. Um, you could tell, although he might have been quiet on the outside, that he was totally engaged inside, but he was always very careful because he knew, I don't want people to, to, to think of this in, in the wrong way, but he knew he was operating in the shadow of his dad, and he was like a sponge. He wanted to learn, not only learn the craft, but to learn the business, you know, how you conduct yourself in the car and how you conduct yourself out of the car because both those things are equally important in, in this world. The task of running a 24-hour race for the first time still was daunting for Dale Jr., the funny thing about a 24-hour race, now there's technology today where I don't know if you can get away with it as a driver, but the funny thing is that you make a lot of mistakes out there and either the team doesn't know it or they just don't say anything about it. The tires in that particular race were ice, slick as ice. I mean, just completely no grip for the first whole lap, lap and a half maybe. You really could not push the car at all coming out of the pits. I mean, just could not touch the dang throttle. I mean, I think the first time I'm coming down pit road and I'm controlling the car with the pit road speed limiter and which was foreign. I mean, never had to do that before and making sure I'm doing that and I'm paying attention and, and get to the line. And I go a little bit further beyond the line just to make sure I don't speed and I let go and I'm thinking when I let go, you know, not to be on the gas because it could take off. And, and so I'm doing all this stuff and I get to where we're, you know, when you, when you leave pit road, there's a wall separating you from the racetrack and it's very narrow pit road exit. And I was rolling, uh, my rolling speed was just too fast. And when I went to turn uh, to go out pit lane, the front tires, the car just went straight into the fence. Like at 30 miles, I don't know, 30 mile an hour, I've, I hit the damn wall with the right front tire. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, crap. Let me see if this thing is messed up before I start going, you know, hey, guys, guess what just happened? You know, so I'm driving it, and, and it's fine. And we went on. I don't even know if I said anything to them or they even knew it happened or they said anything about it on TV. I can't even remember. There was no hiding his next mistake, though. Later in the night, they put me in the car, and I, I'm, I think it's probably the second stint. I, I'm careful not to hit the wall coming off pit road. I go into the first turn, which is a right-hander through the infield. I touch the throttle a little bit, you know, to get up out of that corner and spun the thing around. And into, they had these little sponsor boards out in the grass, and I knock a few of them over. Way out in the middle of the grass, I mean, I'm, just, I'm 150 yards from off course, just sliding slowly, you know, like 20 mile an hour slide, just real slow. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know where I'm at now at this point once this thing gets going. But all those things happen in the middle of the night. Who knows? I mean, they can only see maybe that there's a slow lap. You know, wow, there's 10 seconds uh, unaccounted for. What would happen that lap? You know, that, yeah. what did he do? And uh, I got the right mindset, I believe. But there were only positive reviews from the Corvette Racing pit stand. Dale Jr.'s speed was judged to be strong enough. 
and unlike the Sebring test where he destroyed the rear of his car, in the race he managed his mistakes well enough. So trying to just get up out of the out of out of pits on new tires, that kept you honest. Really, it made you so timid to to push the car in the first handful of laps once you got out on the racetrack, and you'd just get up your nerve and get up your nerve. And I think by time it was coming around uh, to to doing my stints, I realized that I didn't want to hand this car over to somebody in bad shape. I didn't want to be the guy that broke it. Looking at my lap times, I was doing what I felt comfortable with compared to my expert road course teammates. I was faster than Dad, I thought, and, and, and pretty much the uh, whole duration of the event. And uh, so I was pretty happy with my speed, and I thought, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna keep the car in one piece. And they kept, they kept telling me that. They're like, pace is good, this is a long race, don't push. Don't, this ain't, you know, it's not out there, don't, we're not hot lapping. Uh, take care of the car, take care of the car. Junior adapted very well. It was a very rainy race, and there were some transitional periods when it would sprinkle a little bit, track get a little wet, and Junior was very reluctant to go out because he didn't want to screw up the race. He was very respectful, and we knew we had four guys, and that was part of the reason we wanted to have four guys in case a situation like this arose. And some of the other veterans ran into the same problems that Earnhardt Jr. did, much to his relief. It rained a lot, and... That created a lot of problems in the chicane on the back straightaway, and uh, guys were dropping tires uh, coming out of the chicane, and it created a giant hole right off the edge of the as- asphalt. And so I come through there, and I'm, I've been cutting that. Everybody else is cutting it. I'm cutting it a little bit, you know. And I dropped a tire, and it broke uh, basically the axle. And so I come out of the chicane. I'm, I'm mashing the gas, and it's just spinning one tire. And I said, I broke something in the back of the car, or the transmission, or something's broke in the drivetrain. So I, I put around to the pits, and they find the problem, fix it. And they send the car back out with somebody else in it. I'm like, oh, man, I done messed up big time. I, broke, I don't know how that happened. I mean, I didn't do anything I hadn't been doing before. Well, Andy Pilgrim gets in the car and does the same thing. And I was like, man, that made me kind of – I hated it that we – I hated it happened again. I hated that it cost us time, but I feel better that somebody else, a pro, you know, did it. Still here and happy uh, to be second, uh, second in our in class. Uh, it'd been nice to get on the overall podium, but uh, it was a good run. I mean, we, we just came here uh, hoping to finish, and uh, the, the better we did, the more we did, uh, the more we raised our goals, and we got a little stingy, but we won't come back maybe next year. Dale Jr. did well enough to get invited back three years later. In 2004, he ran the premier prototype division with Tony Stewart and Andy Wallace, and finished fifth overall. That was validation of his talent in a sports car. But Dale Jr. never heard the ultimate seal of approval from the man who put him in his first Rolex 24. I didn't destroy the car, and we had a great finish, and I got invited back, you know, to, court, to, to drive a prototype uh, with Tony Stewart several years later, which I thought was a compliment to how I did in the vet, you know. If nobody ever asked you back, you kind of <laughs> assume that nobody was really impressed with what you did. But You're to good. come back and be able to race in the in the prototypes, uh, I felt like was a was a was a nod to the Corvette. I'll never know really what Dad thought about all that. Um, Dad was never one to come up and say you did a great job or you were better. You know, you did this uh, really well or man that was impressive. He never was the guy that did that. He would say that to other people or t- say it in interviews, but he never said it to you. Yeah. And uh, 
So I'm sure maybe he told Andy Pilgrim some things, or maybe he told some of the Corvette guys some things. But uh, at the end of it, I was really proud uh, of what I did. I was proud of Dad. The world of sports car racing was proud to have the Earnhardts at a signature endurance race. And Dale Earnhardt seemed to have found an unlikely home after spending a three-decade career exclusively around stock cars. The welcoming reception he found at the Rolex 24 was a surprise for Earnhardt, who had grown accustomed to being heavily in demand to the point of regular inconvenience. We had fully prepared with all the required security that we thought we were going to need to be able to provide him the opportunity to move around to get to the car. I mean, you can imagine, because this is going to be a crowd that had, had never seen this. We were going to have new fans that had never been to a road race before. And so we didn't know what to expect, but we had planned for that. The team knew what was happening, but because of the test periods that we had, he got to know the guys on the team. He saw how our team worked, you know, where the truck drivers garner as much respect as the guys who were driving the race car. And he really liked that. He was kind of taken back by that. And, uh, you know, like I said, they were both in, in, in motor coaches in the back. And I had thought that it was going to be a problem. So we had security prepared to be able to walk them from the motor coaches to the... Turned out wasn't even necessary. The fans did not mob him you know they they knew it was him they knew he was driving for a corvette but they were very respectful it was pretty amazing to see it was almost surreal and it it, it affected him i'm not saying that he didn't that he you know missed the stardom and the attention he got he was just amazed at the environment in which we were racing mm -hmm. that he wasn't get, getting mobbed that it wasn't he was taken back by that in a good way we, we were sitting down having lunch or just eating a sandwich and it was kind of quiet he was he was a relatively quiet guy and, and he said doug he said you know this has been a a unique experience for me i said really in what way he said well just not running the car but just the way this team works and and how it's kind of like family and and how you interact with other teams he said i, I i've never seen anything like this he said this has been one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had in racing, seeing this. Hmm. He said, this is really nice. I said, Dale, I said, I want you to enjoy it. I said, it's what racing can be when you're not running for a million dollars a race. I said, when you put big money on it like you guys are racing for, I said, it wouldn't be like this. I said, this is a family. Every team in this paddock is in the same boat. They just have a little different oar. And I said, we're all paddling upstream here trying to make this thing work. He was, he loved it. He just, he liked the whole experience. He loved that form of racing, which then led, of course, um, to him in, in further conversations about wanting to go to Le Mans. He had yeah. always respected that, and of all the things that he had done and all the things that he had won and all the acclaim that he had garnered throughout his career. Going to Le Mans was going to be like the pinnacle for him. But two weeks later, Dale Earnhardt was gone, killed in a head-on collision with the Turn 4 wall on the final lap of the Daytona 500. The fatal accident shook NASCAR to its core and spawned a revolution in safety advancements. No driver has died after a cup crash since then. In death, Earnhardt's impact was ensured of reverberating in NASCAR for years to come. But the 2001 Rolex 24, the final post-race celebration of his life, was a postscript of what might have been next in Earnhardt's remaining years of racing. You know, when I thought when I think about that race, sometimes I think about that, and sometimes I don't. But um, yeah, I think um, 
you know, I, I, I just appreciate, I guess, that we got to do that, you know, before he was, he was taken away from us. But um, uh, because he was, that was probably like one of the first dominoes in a series of things that he might have wanted to do outside of this life as a race car driver uh, in, in NASCAR. He may have had other uh, unique things that he had to check off his list, you right. know, and that was probably the first one. Because uh, I was real, I was real surprised when he came up with the idea to even do it. You know, I, I didn't think he was the kind of guy that would do these extracurricular things outside of his, you know, immense responsibilities. I mean, he was a busy, busy man. Well, the Corvette program people thought that he was going to run Le Mans eventually. That he was telling them that right. I'll probably run another year in Cup, <clears throat> and then 2002, yeah, you might see me in France. I think it would You think that would happen? Absolutely. I'm 100% sure that he would have probably made that happen. The plans to put Dale Earnhardt in the 24 hours of Le Mans already were being formulated before his jet had left Daytona after the Rolex 24. Le Mans is the most prestigious endurance race in the world. A crown jewel associated with Dan Gurney, A.J. Foyt, and Steve McQueen. And it would have had another slice of racing Americana in Earnhardt, NASCAR's version of John Wayne. Fian said some of the groundwork was laid for having Dale Earnhardt race in France, possibly as early as 2002. And he knew he was dealing with, with an experienced team, and he knew he was dealing with, with uh, a company, General Motors Chevrolet, who, uh, who, who wanted to have him be part of what we were doing. You find ways to, to, to make those things happen. We had a, a car that was ready to go, and we had worked out how, you know, we were going to look at how we were going to try and fit scheduling for testing and travel back and forth. It was, I, I don't want to say that it was 90% of the way there, but everybody had agreed that we were going to do this. You know, we had the framework, we had the foundation uh, pretty solidified into getting that done. It was his dream. He was only going to run, well, this is what he told me anyway. His plan was, at least at that point in time, he was only going to run one more year. Of Cup. Of Cup. And then he saw himself for being able to compete for a number of years. Not just This was not going to just be a Le Mans race. He wanted to do Le Mans race, but he wanted to do more sports car racing. He enjoyed the, the environment. It was just a completely different environment than in which he had to work in every weekend. There are ways in which the Corvette and Earnhardt links remain very strong. The year after Earnhardt's death, Fian said the team received a heartfelt letter from Teresa Earnhardt while preparing for Le Mans. The letter still hangs in Corvette Racing's shop. After Dale had passed, it was that first year at Le Mans. This is, this, this is where it gets a little emotional for me. You know, when you think about the last checkered flag that he ever saw was in a Corvette, it's pretty remarkable. It's, you know, it just gives me pause to think about that. But that following year uh, at Le Mans, uh, Teresa had written a letter. She obviously... Junior had e expressed to her the, the traditions that we had developed. The tradition that we had before Daytona was similar to the tradition that we had before Le Mans. And uh, she had written a very emotional letter uh, to the team talking about what Dale, you know, what Dale's dream was mm -hmm. at that race and uh, what it meant to him and how important his time was with our team. It was pretty cool. Peter and Tom wanted to know what my dream car was. Well, this is it. It's, it's Corvette Racer. And the reason why is, is 
I've talked about running the 24-hour race for a lot of years in, in Daytona. And Chevrolet and the Corvette guys came up with this deal. Now, this is a race car. And that's, that's one thing that's uh, great about it. I went down and tested the car, and uh, I've got a Corvette that I drive around the street, but it's nothing as fancy, nothing as get up and go and also stop and turn as, as good as this race car does. And this is going to be a fun car to race in the 24-hour race, but uh, a fun car and a great memory for me. Uh, matter of fact, uh, might even build a street car just like this to play with on the street. But uh, this is, I think, uh, an ult ultimate dream car right here. Dale Jr. also found his own ways to salute his father and the Corvette legacy. Dad's passing, the Corvette guys uh, put a couple stripes on the car to honor Dad uh, and kept those on the car for a couple years. That meant a lot to me uh, that they, you know, had such a short time with him in their, in their, in their span of existence. They had this little blip of involvement and, and collaboration with Dad, but that, that meant so much to them that they would acknowledge him beyond and the black bumper on the car uh, is what I took from them and used on my race cars, you know, from 2008. Uh, ever since when I started working with Hendrick, I put that black uh, tail on my car as sort of a nod to that experience, the Corvette uh, experience, and road and, and sports car racing in general. He also has a replica of the number three Corvette from the 2001 Rolex 24. His dad was supposed to have a matching car means more to me now um, than when I than I ever thought it you know when we decided to to have these cars made you know I didn't I didn't know that you know all the, I didn't know dad was going to be taken from us uh, just a short time later um, it took a while for these cars to get built the wing on my car came from the second place finishing Corvette at Le Mans that year. The wing on Dad's car came from the winning car, and Dad didn't want his wing to be painted. He wanted all the rubber and debris and stuff from the race still on the wing. I wanted mine to be painted because I wanted to match. Because I wanted to drive around town, right? You know, I, I wasn't even thinking or I'd have left it alone. So that's why Dad was so smart, but uh, he left his wing dirty. Um, but I thought when I when when they were like, hey, you know, we we could make these cars recreate a street version of this car, and and uh, you get the wings off of the cars from Le Mans. And we're like, wow, you know, that's a that's amazing. That's cool. Let's do it. Dad, you gonna do it? Dad's gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. Okay. And then Dad gets uh, taken away from us, and so the car became much more important to me because of that. I think because this is a bit of a symbolic piece for me, something we did together at the end of his life. And um, I'll, I've had to re-decal it once because uh, the decals age and, you know, and, and deteriorate somewhat. Um, and I've already put <clears throat> one splitter on the front because oh. <clears throat> I've knocked the splitter off of it driving it through town. But I don't drive anymore because it's just so low to the ground. You know, you just, I don't want to hurt it. But uh, I did drive it a little bit. But it, I, I, uh, I only have a couple handful, I only have a handful of cars to my name, and there's only one or two that I'll never, ever get rid of, and this is one of them. Okay. I'll always have this. He still has the friendships as well, even if he doesn't see his sports car racing teammates as often. Junior Motorsports fielded a car for Pilgrim at two road courses a decade ago, 
because of a promise Dale Earnhardt had made to put Pilgrim in an Xfinity car. When you do, when you race together in Rolex, you create friendships that last forever and a bond and relationship that lasts forever. Um, Andy Pilgrim and I still talk and still communicate. Ron Fellows is one of my most one of my favorite people that I still communicate with. Yes, yeah, so you make friendships that last forever, and, and I'll always be a part of the Corvette program in my eyes, and I think that uh, you know, it's kind of one of the things. If they ever needed anything from me, they could have it, and I've, I feel the same way. Like, if I ever needed anything from them, they'd be right there, and it's just you make those bonds. I think it because I think the fact that me and Dad came into that program and were – we didn't come in there thinking we knew what we, you know, what we were going to do or how we were going to do it. We were both uh, basically just like, hey, teach us. Tell us what we need. Tell us how this works. Tell us where we, where our minds need to be. Dad was extremely professional and modest, and I felt like I just kind of followed his lead with that. And, and I feel like that they, I think they really appreciated that. They ran the program, ran they you know, we listened to the drivers, Andy and, and 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 Kelly and we did everything everybody said and and it worked out. Dale Jr.'s sports car career was interrupted by a fiery crash at Sonoma Raceway in two thousand four. Though now retired from full time racing, he still hasn't ruled out another try at the Rolex twenty four. The door is always open to run that that race again. I'd never run full-time. I'd never want to really run Le Mans, I don't think. But the Daytona 24-hour race to me is, uh, having done it before, makes it very special to me. And the cars are so much fun. The track's a lot of fun. The, uh, the approach is probably a lot more my speed these days. Um, you know, having to take care of your stuff and make sure you give the car to the next guy in one piece. and. It'd be fun. It's something you could do with friends. You know, that the driving with other drivers and, and all being in the same car and collaborating and debriefing together and, and sharing that experience as, as one team is, is something that I enjoy. The best thing about racing for me was the people and the team, the buddies, the friends that you make. Steve Letard and Greg Ives, Adam Jordan and T Travis Mack and, and Jason Burdett, all those friends that you make, those doing it with those people and imagine doing it with drivers that you're friends with, Truex or somebody like that, you know, or just going and having fun. And yeah, of course you want to win. Of course you want to do great, but that's not really the priority. The priority is the experience. The priorities it's like hunting. Uh, it's not the the shot. It's everything that happens before that. It's, it's the, the preparation, yeah. the journey, the, the the hanging out together, the, the eating together, and and getting ready and preparing and talking. And so, for me, the 24-hour race uh, kind of brings all that together, and and it has so much to offer in in, in that in, in a great experience. So I'd love to do it again. Just has to. You know, not just with anything or anyone, it would need, I would love it to be with just the right people. There will be a certain group at Daytona International Speedway this weekend who would be happy to have him back. In the Corvette Corral, where a few hundred Corvette owners and IMSA fans will gather, Fian says it's easy to find many who revere their favorite car brands association with the Earnhardt name. It's indelible. How, how does that ever, ever go away? Right. I mean, it doesn't. It just doesn't. When you think of all the things that it means, 
and all the things that it stood for. I mean, it is a very important part of, of Americana, for me anyway, and, and I think for every every Corvette owner, every Corvette race fan. And every one of them is really proud that Dale Earnhardt associated himself with their brand. That's never going away. It's, it, it's fun for me to, to, to look back. It, it was a humbling point in time, um, but, but, but so meaningful and inspirational. And, and that extended, obviously, to the entire team and to our entire fan base and, and probably all the motorsports. Uh, being able to be around that guy was pretty cool. As if you need more practice, as you said, you were here for the 24 hours. What was that experience like? Oh, it was awesome. Uh, the, to drive the Corvettes was a tremendous uh, honor to get to, to drive with Andy Pilgrim and uh, Kelly Collins, Dale Jr. He was he was super in the car. And I was pretty good in the rain, too. I mean, I was one of the fastest cars out there when I was driving the car in the rain. And I was amazed with the downforce and the rain tires, uh, how fast I went in the rain. I was really proud to do that race and excited about it. And uh, I think it's going to be something that I'm, I'm going to remember a long time and may do it again sometime. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the NASCAR and NBC podcast. NBC Sports Group's coverage of IMSA's 50th season kicks off Saturday with the Rolex 24 Hours of Daytona. The race broadcast will begin at 2 p.m. Eastern on NBCSN and move to the NBC Sports app at 5 to 9 p.m. From 9 p.m. Saturday to 3 a.m. Sunday, coverage will shift back to NBCSN and the broadcast will pick up again on NBCSN at 6 a.m. Eastern Time Sunday through 3 p.m. for the checkered flag and post-race. Again, all of Sunday's Rolex 24 coverage on NBCSN. The NASCAR and NBC podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been a while since we've had a review on Apple Podcasts. So if you've enjoyed hearing this two-part episode on the Earnhardts racing the 2001 Rolex 24, please tell us about it by leaving a review. As always, you can send me feedback on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.